Mother's Day is a time we set aside to celebrate motherhood. Motherhood results from childbirth because it is conceiving and then birthing a child that causes a woman to become a mother. A woman that adopts a child is also a mother. A stepmother is also a mother. In a technical sense, a mother becomes a mother the instant she conceives a child, even if that unborn child doesn't survive until birth. If there's an unfortunate miscarriage or if there's a more tragic abortion, still she's a mother because she conceived a child. The average mother in this nation has a total of just over two children. The highest birth rate is in Niger, Africa, and the average mother there has almost seven children. A piece of trivia, uh, in a recent year, almost 33,000 women uh, here in the U.S. gave birth at a location other than in a hospital. Uh, most happened in homes, planned uh, in homes where a midwife helped facilitate the child's birth, and that is becoming more and more common. But some women actually gave birth en route to the hospital. And that is not recommended. Uh, this morning we're going to discuss something that has a direct connection to motherhood and childbirth. The first part of Genesis contains the historical record of creation. And most important, it describes the origin of man. God created the first man and named him Adam. And then out of man, God created woman. And then Adam, notice, Adam, not God, Adam named the woman Eve. The Hebrew word translated as man is ish, I-S-H, and the Hebrew word translated as woman is isha, I-S-H-A, because woman had her source in man. Eve was the first mother, and the name Eve means the mother of all living. She was named that because she was to be the mother of the entire human race. It's interesting that Eve's name is only used four times in Scripture. Twice in the Old Testament and twice in the New Testament. There's so much we don't know about Eve. There are no anatomical or cosmetic details mentioned about her or even alluded to. We don't know how tall she was. Uh, we don't know um, her weight. We don't know the color of her eyes, color of her hair. We don't know those things. And we don't know how many total children she had. But we do know the one thing she did that is most regrettable. She committed the first human act of sin. God put the first man and woman in a garden-like environment called Eden. He told them it was permissible to eat the fruit from all the trees in the garden except for one. And that was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That one tree, and only that one tree, was to be off limits to them. Satan manifested himself to the woman as a serpent or a snake-like creature. And through a series of lies, he managed to deceive Eve into eating some fruit from that tree. Eve ate the forbidden fruit, then gave some of that forbidden fruit to her husband to eat also. Now, don't misunderstand this. It was Adam's eating the fruit that introduced sin and all its consequences into the human race. 
And that's because Adam was the first man. He represented the entire human race. Romans 5.12, this is familiar. Therefore, as through one man, the first man, Adam, sin entered the world. And as a consequence of that sin, death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. That disobedient act on the part of Adam is known as original sin. It is what Adam did in eating that fruit that constituted original sin, and not what Eve did. Eve was deceived, but Adam's sin was deliberate. He chose to eat the fruit Eve offered him with full knowledge that to do that meant he would be acting in deliberate disobedience against God. I read a text, I have questions. My question is, why wasn't Adam with Eve when she was tempted? I mean, what did he have to do that was so important he couldn't be with the one and only perfect woman? That doesn't make sense to me. Why would he want to be apart from her? I I call that pre-sin stupidity. Um, If Eve, and only Eve, had eaten the fruit and Adam had refused to eat that fruit, then sin would not have been perpetuated throughout the human race at that point. I'm guessing, this is a guess, God then would have expelled Eve from the garden, and then God would have created another female mate for Adam. And we assume the test would have happened a second time. But that didn't happen. So in Genesis chapter 3, God pronounced a curse, starting in verse 14. Genesis 3, 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, this is Satan, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Verse 15. And I will put enmity or hostility between you and the woman, between Satan and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first messianic uh, prophecy. Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. God pronounced a curse because of the original sin man had committed, and that divine curse had four basic sections. The first part of that curse was directed at the serpent, described in verse 14. And remember, the serpent was Satan, manifesting himself as some form of reptile. The second part of this curse was directed to Satan himself, described in verse 15. The third part of that curse was directed to the woman, described in verse 16. And then the fourth part of that curse was focused on the man, described in verses 17 through 19. Notice the definition. A curse is a solemn utterance intended to invoke a supernatural power. And God himself is that supernatural power here intended to invoke a supernatural power to inflict harm or punishment, in this case, on someone 
or something. Understand it is consistent with who God is as God to make trouble a consequence of sin. God doesn't cause someone to sin. God is not the author of sin. God is not the origin of sin. God is not the source of sin. Blame it on man. Blame it on Satan. But don't blame it on God. God doesn't cause sin. But it is consistent with God's character to permit trouble to be a consequence to someone's sin. It isn't that God authorizes trouble in a direct sense, although sometimes he does do that. Um, That would be good trouble, uh, necessary trouble. But God doesn't necessarily authorize sin, a trouble as a result of sin, but he doesn't prevent trouble as a consequent to man's sin. This morning we're addressing the first part of that curse that is applicable to woman. This is the divine curse God assigned to the first woman and potential mother of the human race. Because of the sin she committed in eating the forbidden fruit and then inviting her husband to do the same thing. Verse 16, one more time. To the woman, God said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. This curse on woman consisted of two basic components. The first component relates to a woman's children, and the second component relates to a woman's husband. Notice the two components are increased pain in childbirth, and second, resistance to a husband's headship. Now, please notice this curse assigned to woman wasn't housework. It wasn't doing tons of laundry. It wasn't balancing the checkbook. It wasn't preparing meals. But this curse was connected to those specific areas where a woman should find her most fulfillment and happiness, meaning her children and her husband. Because of time, we're commenting on just the first part of this divine curse on woman, that is found in the first half of verse 16. The second part is more complicated and more controversial. Uh, So we're going to admit that. I'm also considering doing the curse on man on Father's Day uh, because I I need to be a fair and equal opportunity uh, offender. Uh, the The first part of this curse is increased pain in childbirth. God said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. That curse affects a woman from conception through the trimesters, through the actual birth process, and then even after birth. That includes morning sickness, painful labor, possible death in childbirth, serious infections, weight gain that is sometimes impossible to lose afterwards, C-sections, postpartum depression, infants screaming for hours on end because of colic, exhaustion, isolation, sleep deprivation, breastfeeding problems, formula feeding, and the terrible twos, and the worst threes, and on and on and on. And all of those and more are the result of this curse on woman. Now, 
This phrase, I will greatly multiply your sorrow, is an interesting Hebraic phrase. In a literal sense, the construction of that sentence reads, causing to be great, I shall cause to be great your sorrow. Causing to be great, I shall cause to be great your sorrow. That means it's redundant. It is repeated. It is said twice. I will cause to be great. I will cause to be great your sorrow. That sort of emphasis cannot be a good thing. In this curse, God said he would assign woman through childbirth a great multiplied experience of pain unlike anything she could imagine. And from what I am told, that is basically what childbirth is. More than one man, I know men who've had kidney stones. Um, my father had severe kidney stones. And I, more than one man struggling to pass a kidney stone has said, this hurts as bad as labor. And I'm thinking, how would he know? How would he know? Contrary to the left, uh, men cannot get pregnant. Some people suggest a mother shouldn't accept any form of pain alleviation medication during childbirth. Um, and I think if a woman can abstain from medication, that is best. In fact, any time we can abstain from medication is probably a better solution. Uh, but sometimes it's almost impossible. No woman experiencing hard labor needs to hear a husband say, uh, just bear the curse, honey. Just bear the curse. It's okay. <laughs> I, re I still remember our daughter-in-law, Angie, giving birth to our first grandchild. Our grandson is Caleb. He is now 18. He graduates from high school at the end of this month. And uh, I remember, I remember that moment. We were in the hospital. She was in labor. And we were in the room. And uh, she felt she needed an epidural uh, because the doctor suggested that. She needed an epidural to get some relief from the labor pain. And I thought it might be helpful to provide some humor to uh, lighten the mood some. So I said to Angie, are you sure you need an epidural? Hope you didn't have to have an epidural. Probably shouldn't have said that. She was not amused, and if she could have, she probably would have hurt me. The fact that woman was the gender God designed to give birth to children is a good thing because... If he had left that job up to males, the human race would have become extinct right after it started. <laughs> we would not have been able to bear it. The reason that labor is called labor is because giving birth is the same effort required to move a small to medium-sized melon through a cervical opening that starts out the size of a kidney bean. Imagine pushing a small watermelon through an opening that starts out the size of a small kidney bean. That's called childbirth. Childbirth throughout human history has been dangerous. It is true that modern science has developed medication and medical care to reduce the trauma, the physiological trauma of childbirth, and that has given some mothers some measure of comfort, but it hasn't altogether removed the problem because there are still complications during childbirth, and some women still die from it. On an annual basis, on a global scale, one half million women die 
due to serious complications from being pregnant. Seven million more have serious long-term problems from being pregnant. And some 50 million women have negative outcomes after childbirth. I still remember in junior high, uh, an eighth grade social studies teacher named Mr. Helm, and he was a good teacher. And we, we all liked him. He brought us on a field trip uh, one time to an old place from the 1800s called Watkins Mill. It was just outside Kansas City. That was a cool place. And he invited his wife to join us. She was very pregnant at the time. But she participated. She got uh, involved. And, and she seemed super nice. And we, we had a great time together. And so a month after that, as a class, we were shocked and devastated to learn that Mrs. Helm and her baby had both just died from childbirth. But there's definite pain during childbirth as a result of this Genesis curse. And that curse actually extends on past childbirth. Orthodox Jewish rabbis teach that a mother's greatest happiness is to carry the baby throughout the pregnancy because in that state she feels she is better able to protect the child. She isn't as much concerned about diseases and accidents during the pregnancy because as long as the baby is inside the mother, she has an overwhelming sense of fulfillment and exhilaration. The rabbis insist that a woman is at the peak of joyfulness during her pregnancy. Then comes the actual birth, and then the postpartum blues. And rabbis teach that the woman feels a certain loss of intimacy after childbirth because the child is not inside her anymore. Then as the child gets older, that disconnect is more profound because the child is exposed to greater and greater dangerous elements. Those rabbis might be onto something because although the suffering is lessened some, because of modern medical advancements, women still have a pain and sadness that is unique to them because mothers are able to bond with their children in a sense that men cannot understand. But there's something here that probably most people just read over. Notice verse 16. The statement is made, God said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and and, meaning, and multiply your conception. God said that he was going to multiply woman's pain in childbirth and multiply woman's conception. And multiplying conception means more pregnancies. Now, some historians and theologians are of the opinion that woman became more fertile after the first sin. And that increased fertility was a part of this curse. Now, I'm not sure about that. To me, increased fertility is more of a, a blessing than a curse. But some see this as a curse. That means a woman can have a child each calendar month. Although in the U.S., more babies are born in July than any other month. She has the potential to have a child once a year if she wanted to. She's capable of getting pregnant again and again and again and again and again, and some do. The Guinness Book of Records indicates that a Russian woman whose name I cannot pronounce, 
We'll call her Mrs. V. Born 1707, died 1782. This woman had 27 different pregnancies. And that, that in and of itself, that statistic is mind-boggling. The interesting part is that none of those pregnancies resulted in a single birth. None of them. Instead, she had altogether 16 pairs of twins, seven sets of triplets, and four sets of quadruplets, making a total of 69 children. I have just one question. Why? <laughs> Why? But more than one commentator is convinced that this potential to get pregnant on a frequent basis was not the case before sin. It was not the case before the fall. If in the original garden, remember, man was created in a state of innocence, and so man in his original state was eternal, so there was no need to get into a big rush to create babies. I mean, since before sin, no one could die. So if procreation happened then as often as it does now in that state, then the earth would have been overpopulated in no time at all. But we know things changed at sin. It seems in the original state of innocence, childbirth was designed to be less frequent than it has been after the fall. That probably meant that a woman's menstrual cycle was less frequent also. And because it was prior to sin, there was no such thing as PMS, for example. But since the original sin, women can conceive a child or multiple birth children each year. According to some people, that is because of this curse. But that's not the end. The solution to the stigma brought onto woman from that curse is found in the New Testament. Notice 1 Timothy 2, starting at verse 13. Verse 13, for Adam was formed first and then Eve. Understand that is the creative order. Someone said the reason God created man first and then woman was because he didn't want any advice on how to create man. That's why that happened. I didn't say that. Someone else said that. Verse 14, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. The word deceived used in verse 14 is a stronger word than the common word deceived. It is a word that means to be fully deceived, to be thoroughly deceived to be completely deceived. The first woman bought into Satan's lie, hook, line, and sinker. I might add our PowerPoint slides uh, have, uh, have an eaten apple on them, but we do not know what that forbidden fruit consisted of. The common thinking is it must have been an apple. We we have no evidence of that. We don't know what it was. All we know was that they were not to eat of that fruit. Because of that, since the beginning, woman has gotten this bad rap that she started this whole sin mess. And in a sense, a sense she did. Satan deceived the woman in the garden, 
And then afterwards she told the man what she had done. Man then chose to act in solidarity with his wife and eat the fruit instead of being obedient to God's instructions. But it was that decision on the part of man, not woman, that decision on the part of man, that deliberate, intentional decision to eat that forbidden fruit he had been presented. It was that decision that started the sin progression throughout the entire human race. But, in a technical sense, woman was the first to be disobedient, not man. So ever since that time, woman has been the recipient of jokes and even ridicule, such as, question, where would man be without woman? Answer, back in the Garden of Eden. That's what some people think. But that's unfair to woman, because if woman had not been created, listen to me, if woman had not been created, and only man, it would have been just a matter of time before man did the exact same thing she did. And we all understand that. But that stigma associated with Eve's actions and sin can be minimized. It can be alleviated to some degree. And verse 15 tells us how that is. Verse 15, nevertheless, she, woman, will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. This is considered one of the most difficult verses in the entire New Testament to interpret. An extremely difficult to understand verse. Some have actually suggested this means a woman's salvation is contingent on having children. That's completely absurd. Because then a woman that is unable to have children could never have salvation. Besides, salvation is through getting Jesus, not through getting pregnant. The moment a woman marries a man, there are potential times of happiness and fulfillment, but there is also predictable trouble. Predictable trouble because she has married a big sinner, and now she's giving birth to little sinners. So childbirth isn't the solution to the sin problem. Question, how are women saved through childbearing? It is important to understand that the word saved can mean saved from things other than being saved from sin. Notice the context. Verse 14 records that it was the first woman that was deceived in the garden, and woman since then has had to bear the stigma of that unfortunate decision. The answer to this question is, childbirth can, in a sense, in a limited sense, save a woman from the stigma and embarrassment of that curse God assigned to all women. Commentators believe that is one possible and most probable meaning of this statement, she shall be saved in childbearing. Woman can be saved from being left in a permanent stigmatized situation from that sin and the curse on that sin through childbirth. Now listen to this. The pain in childbearing is the punishment assigned to woman because she facilitated the original sin. She set Adam up. 
But the ironic thing is that through painful childbearing, she can also find a sense of salvation from the stigma and embarrassment connected to that first sin because the happiness associated with the birth of a child and the subsequent maturation of that child completely overrides that curse. The pain a woman experiences in birthing a child reminds her of that woman's first sin. But the child that results from that birth reminds her that God is good and gracious because God has positioned her to where through that child she can make a positive contribution to the next generation. Notice the rest of this verse. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they meaning if both mother and child or mother and children continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. There are four important qualities God said a mother uh, should possess herself and then reproduce in her children in order to mitigate that Genesis curse on woman. I might add, gentlemen, this is also applicable to us. Let me define these qualities. Faith is the first one. Faith is defined as a personal dependence on Jesus. A personal dependence on Jesus to both save us and then enable us to survive and even thrive during our time on this earth. We sang about this verse, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. And that's in a positional sense. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Christ in me is salvation. Each Christian has Christ in them. And the life which I now live in the flesh, this is post-salvation sanctification. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I read a disturbing report that said that only three out of ten, that's less than one-third, Three out of ten, that's 30% of evangelical parents mentioned the salvation of their children in their list of critical parental emphasis. That's unbelievable to me. Nothing matters more than our children's salvation. Nothing. Children often give parents reasons to be proud of them. Different parents have boasted to me about their child becoming a musical artist, a doctor, a policeman, a firefighter, a professional athlete, a college professor, an attorney, and on and on and on. And that's fantastic stuff. But in the big scheme of things, none of that matters if that child hasn't experienced salvific faith in Jesus Christ. Hope and I are so blessed. We are so blessed because all of our children and our grandchildren now have received Christ and are saved. That has to be a priority. In simplistic language, the word faith means to trust. Exercising faith in someone or something means to trust in that something or someone. Although it might be subconscious, we exercise faith all the time. We exercise faith the moment we turn the ignition key in our car, or in our case, push the ignition button, because we are trusting after that movement, trusting that car to start. I have owned some cars that required massive faith. We once had a PT Cruiser. Don't know why we bought it, 
dumbest thing ever. We had a PT Cruiser that broke down so often. We were on a first name basis with a tow truck driver. I'm not kidding. It got to the point where we had virtually no faith in that car. We exercise faith to receive salvation. We call that salvific faith. Salvific faith because it is a faith that saves. Meaning we trust Jesus to save us from sin and from sin's consequences. And then we exercise faith after salvation because then we trust Jesus to enable us to succeed as a Christian. Second word is love. Love is defined as a self-sacrificing act we do for someone else. Understand, if love doesn't act, it's not love. Love isn't just an emotion. Love isn't just a sentimental feeling. Love is an attitude that results in a particular act we do for someone else. 1 Peter 1, verse 22. Since you have purified your souls and obeying the truth of the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another, how? Fervently, with a pure heart. Titus 2, 3 and 4. The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, verse 4, that they, the older women, admonish the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children. Now notice the precise order mentioned in verse 4. Women are to love their husbands first and then to love their children. Husbands, then children. It seems I have found something that is just disturbing um, the longer I have pastored. More and more marriages are in, ending in divorce even though those people have been married for decades. I have met people that are now divorcing after four and a half decades of marriage. And I'm thinking, why? I mean, haven't you kind of passed the point of no return? You made it this far, can't you stick it out? Well, the reason it happens is because throughout the marriage, the woman hyphen mother the mother's almost entire focus was on the children. She reversed this order. It was about the children, loving the children, caring for the children, accommodating the children. And in being so child-centric, in doing that, she ignored the husband. I mean, he was there. Uh, they interacted some. Uh, but... Her focus was on the children and not on him. And so once the children became adults and out of the house, this woman, hyphen, mother was then left alone with this husband that she no longer had a relationship to and she essentially no longer loved. And so there was a divorce. It's not unusual to see a mother unlove her marriage mate. Because divorce still happens. But it is unusual to see a mother unlove her children. It is rare. It does happen. There are occasions. But it is unusual to see a mother unlove her children. I would suggest there is no stronger love than a mother's love. 
Some of us might remember an infamous character named Ted Kaczynski. Ted Kaczynski or the Unabomber. Ted Kaczynski became an anarchist, serial murderer, and according to the FBI, a domestic terrorist. He now turns 81 this month, and he is now in prison, has been for some time serving eight consecutive life sentences. Ted entered Harvard at age 16 and ultimately earned a Ph.D. in mathematics. He was literally a mathematical genius. He became the youngest professor ever hired at UC Berkeley. He taught there two years and then resigned. And he moved to a remote area outside Lincoln, Montana. He built himself a small cabin with no electricity and no running water, and he worked odd jobs to survive. He became more and more frustrated, though, as he witnessed modern civilization destroying the wilderness around him. He was very environmental, environmentally conscious, and he was upset at what was happening as, you know, man was pushing more and more into the wilderness and destroying all of this. Instead of attempting to reform the modern techno-industrial movement, he decided to take down the system. So from 1978 through 1995, he either sent or hand-delivered a series of increasingly sophisticated homemade explosive bombs, bombs that caused three fatalities and injured 23 more. Kaczynski was a subject of the FBI's most intensive investigation and manhunts ever. After his arrest and subsequent imprisonment, his mother, Wanda Kaczynski, did an interview for the Chicago Times, pardon me, Chicago Tribune. At the time of that article, she had been consistently writing letters to her son in prison, letters he never acknowledged receiving, letters he never read or responded to. She shared with the newspaper reporter her most recent letter. It said in part, I want you to know, Ted, that when a child is born, the parents then give them the gift of unconditional love for a lifetime. That is true of you. No matter what happens, my love will be there for a lifetime. Love, mother. That was after Ted had even refused to look at his mother as she entered the courtroom each day as he was being tried. That was after he gave public testimony in court that, in his estimation, his mother was a horrific person. But even then, he couldn't stop his mother from loving him. There is no stronger love than a mother's love for her child. The third word is holiness. Holiness. Now, we covered this subject last Sunday. So uh, let me just touch on this and move on. Remember, holiness is derived from a root word that means to separate something, to set apart something. Practical holiness is a daily, progressive experiential separating ourselves more and more from sin and consecrating ourselves more and more unto God. 1 Peter 1, and there are dozens of verses I could have used. I wanted to use this that I used last time. First Peter 1, 15 and 16, but as he, God, who called you is holy, 
you also be holy in all your conduct. Conduct meaning behavior. Verse 16, because it is written, be holy for I, God, am holy. Remember, God is absolute holiness. And he wants to replicate his holiness in us and through us as best as we as humans are able to. Each year on the first Saturday in December, 2,500 of the brightest college students in North America take what is considered the most difficult math test on the planet. It's called the William Lowell Lowell, William Lowell Putman Mathematical Competition. It's a math competition. That competition has been conducted each December since 1927. And for the record, I was never invited to participate in that competition. So how difficult is that exam, that William Lowell Putman mathematical exam? There are just 12 questions, just 12, but this is a six-hour test. And although those that take the test are the brainiest young adult minds in our educational system, out of a possible score of 120, the median score on a recent test was one point. Sometimes the median score is zero. That's how difficult it is. The problem is there's an even higher and more impossible standard than that. That standard is God's holiness. And we cannot even come close to God's perfect intrinsic holiness. But God still wants us to make the attempt, even if we only score a single point. The fourth word is self-control. Self-control is the ability to refrain from acting on our desires and impulses. The ability to refrain, to resist from acting on our desires and impulses. Second Peter 1, 5 and 6. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. To virtue, add knowledge. Verse 6. To knowledge, add self control. For a mother, because children can push you to your limit. There's no question. We've had three sons. We understand that concept. For a mother, self-control might mean biting her tongue or pushing back from the table or letting off the gas pedal or saying no to unnecessary purchases or resisting the urge to scream at the children or refusing to argue with her husband. She is to be disciplined. She is to attempt to demonstrate self-control at all times. I have a PhD in apologizing. I have apologized thousands of times. It's embarrassing to admit, but I, I'm an expert at apologizing. The one thing I've had to apologize for more than anything else is losing control of my emotions. Or I said something in anger, impulsively, that I regretted. I blew up, and then instantly I realized I messed up, and I had to apologize. That's happened 
more times than I can count. Sometimes there's a fine line between self-control and out-of-control. Parents of teenagers. Teenagers are frustrating. That is reality. Uh, Parents of teenagers sometimes confiscate a child's electronics as an effective means of parental correction. Uh, As I was raised as a teenager, there were no electronics hardly. I mean, we didn't have that. We had a a transistor radio. That was about it. And uh, so our parents used another method to correct us. And you probably can know what that is. Um, Especially, though, now, because we're in a highly technical age, uh, a child's cell phone is like so valuable to them. Confiscating a child's cell phone is almost a near-death experience for a teenager. I mean, that's like, they're going to go through serious withdrawal. According to an account in a British newspaper, one mother basically took that practice to its ultimate end. Remember, there's a fine line uh, being, uh, remember, between being in control and out of control. So one mother grabbed her child's iPhone, positioned it in a tree, and then announced, quote, I hereby denounce the negative effects that social media has had on my children, especially their disobedience and disrespect. At that point, she raised a 12-gauge shotgun to her shoulder and blasted that phone to smithereens. She said in a still elevated voice, I also take back my role as a parent. She then grabbed a sledgehammer and started to pulverize the remaining fragments of that phone. And as her dog watched, she concluded, I'm done. She dropped the hammer and walked away. Now, some people might think that is terrible. No, no, no. That's actually awesome. That was an act of self-controlled, righteous indignation analogous to Jesus cleansing the temple. The point of this passage is that if a mother can become the female incarnation of faith, love, holiness, and self-control, and can instill those same qualities in her children, and then contribute in part to doing the same thing in her grandchildren, then she can minimize and neutralize the impact of the Genesis curse on woman. And she can become one of those virtuous women Proverbs 31 talks about. It is said that about a century ago that a Christian minister and a soap maker went, uh, went on a walk together. The soap maker was extremely cynical of Christianity. And he said, so reverend, tell me, what good is religion? Look at all the trouble and miserable conditions that exist in human society. It's still here after 20 centuries of Christian teaching, teaching people about goodness and truth and peace. But it's still here after all the teaching and prayers and sermons. If Christianity is so true and so good, then why are we still in the mess we're in? The minister heard that tirade and said nothing. And the two men continued walking until both of them came to a playground and noticed a small child playing around in the dirt. The minister said, look at that child. 
You're a soap maker. You insist that soap makes people clean. But look at all the dirt on that boy. So what good is soap? With all the soap there is and all the soap there has been for centuries, how is it that that child is now still covered in dirt? It just doesn't seem that soap is all that effective. The soap maker started to protest and argue and said, but Reverend, you don't understand. Soap can't do someone any good unless it's used. The minister responded, that's exactly my point. Mothers, Christianity can't do us and or our children any good unless it is used. So let's use it. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for what we've learned. I think there were some practical things in this message, and I hope we will take them to heart, whether we're male or female. These things ought to be a part of who we are, faith and love and all the rest, self-control and holiness. God, we, we all could improve in those areas. Help us to do that. Help us to re represent your son Jesus better than we do at all times so that you might be glorified and others might see the difference in us and want what we have. I pray we will, and I mean that for me, and I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.